If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 749. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll and purchase one or 20 of my classes there, whatever you can. Those are great courses. If you like the podcast, you like the courses, and they keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo on all kinds of cool stuff. It's Christmas season. Get it for that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life or purchase one of my books, amazon.com. It's a great resource for that. They have all the books there, but you can find most of them on any other online retailer as well. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way there. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the little super thanks button under the video. Or, of course, if you're at anchor.fm, you can subscribe there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially, but as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it a five-star review. Leave a text review at Apple Podcasts. Comment. For the algorithm on YouTube, let the videos play through as much as you can. That does help bump the podcast up the recommended list. So I appreciate all of that. And send me those show requests. You can let me know what you want to hear. Share it around on social media. That's a great way to support the show. And I am going to dedicate four episodes at the end of 2022. I said this is it. Last four episodes of the year. I'm going to dedicate four episodes to listener comments or requests. And I'm going to start today with a question, and it's actually a pretty difficult question to answer. So I'm going to simply uh, talk about this off the cuff. Um, There's no article that goes along with, there's nothing I can can say that I could pull up. I've, I've done this before, I've done this issue before, but I want to talk about this off the cuff. And the question essentially is, Are Americans moving to a more decentralized view of government? So, in other words, is America becoming much more receptive to decentralization in 2022 than they have been at any time previously? If you look at how things are going in politics, American politics, are we moving to a a phase where people are going to be more accepting of decentralization, more accepting of real federalism or things like secession, nullification, than at any point in American history in recent memory. So I want to answer this in a couple of different ways. One positively and one negatively. So let's start with the positive side. I've told this story before on this podcast, but maybe you're new and you haven't heard it before. In the 1990s, I was sitting in uh, having a conversation with uh, my advisor in graduate school and another individual. We were in his house and we were talking about politics. And uh, this was about 1998, maybe somewhere in there, 1998, 1999. And uh, the, the topic of nullification came up. 
And I said at that point, here I am, a young graduate student. Um, I said, look, if we could just have nullification, if we could just somehow get to a point where people in America would believe in nullification again, everything could turn around in the United States. Now, think about this. This is 1997, 1998. I think it was around 98. So we're at a point where it's about, you know, what, 25 years ago. And um, 25 years ago, this individual, not, not my advisor, but the other individual, looked at me and said, well, that's a dumb idea because nullification never works. And my advisor, Clyde Wilson, turned and said, that's not true. Anytime nullification has been used, it's worked virtually every single time. And that stopped the other guy in his tracks. And of course, I thought, well, heck yeah, I got backup. You know, <laughs> Clyde Wilson's going to support my position. But if you think about that historically, so I'm going to start with that and then look at where we are with some of the developments we've had in the last 25 years, that things that I thought were almost impossible. So if you look at what he said, let's think about nullification in practice. If you go back to the colonial period, and I'm talking back to the Stamp Act, right, 1765, there's actually a book by um, Edmund Morgan where he talks about it's the Stamp Act crisis. And he actually has a chapter in that book entitled Nullification. And he talks about how essentially what happened in the Stamp Act period was that New England colonies, New England colonies nullified the Stamp Act. And if you look at the Suffolk Resolves, which were uh, passed in Massachusetts in 1774, the Suffolk Resolves were nullification. Essentially, what they were saying is, we're not going to enforce these unconstitutional acts by the British Empire. We won't do it. If you go to colonial Virginia, you had efforts in Virginia itself to nullify acts of the royal governor. And the the counties just simply refuse to enforce those acts. So nullification is there in the colonial period. I mean, we're using it. The, the Americans are using it in the colonial period. It is essentially refusal to enforce unconstitutional laws. In the Stamp Act, they viewed as unconstitutional. There were several different laws that were passed in the colonial period by the empire, which the American colonists viewed as unconstitutional. This was nullification. Now, Morgan called it that, but we don't usually call it that because nullification has such a negative connotation to it because of the 1950s. I'll talk about that in a minute. But nullification actually worked in the colonial period to arrest unconstitutional legislation. You've got to remember, when the colonists refused essentially to enforce the Stamp Act or refused to abide by it, what did the empire do? It rescinded the Stamp Act. It didn't. It, it worked, right? It wasn't enforceable. It worked. So we go from there. We get into the American War for Independence. Again, the American War for Independence is based on the position that we have unconstitutional laws. It's not this grand articulation of natural rights or, uh, you know, the proposition nation. The American War for Independence begins because there was no representation in the parliament for the American colonists. The constitutional view of the American colonies was different from that of the empire. They didn't think that they could be represented by a parliament across an ocean. They already had their own elected legislatures, and they believed they alone could tax themselves. 
And so it was a constitutional crisis, as Jack Green has pointed out. It wasn't some lofty, soft interpretation. I do believe in a much more hard interpretation of the American War for Independence. It was a political conflict. And when you have people like Patrick Henry stand up and talk about their ancient, the ancient constitutions, the rights of Englishmen, English liberties, well... Uh, that certainly plays into it. Now, the Straussians will tell you, well, wait a second here. This is when I talked about Glenn Elmers. Wait a second here. They had dropped all that by 1775. They were talking about all these other things by 1776, natural rights and human liberty and all. Okay, well, here's the thing. All that was based on the conflict which had gone on for 10 years as a constitutional crisis, Okay. So they were basing all of this on the ancient constitutions, the ancient rights of Englishmen, Magna Carta, English Bill of Rights. These were the things they were really concerned about. And that structure of the empire where the center could regulate trade and defend the colonies, but it could not tax them directly or through uh, the or, or pass a type of currency laws or direct taxes through the colonies themselves. They just couldn't do that, right? Indirect taxes are things like tariffs. Essentially, it's an indirect tax. A direct tax where you're applying a tax straight onto the people like a Stamp Act, unconstitutional. That is the same structure that we had with the U.S. Constitution. People forget about this. Okay, So when you look at what the, what the founding generation did then after that point, they secured their independence in 1783. They've got the Articles of Confederation, which is now ratified in 1781. They're operating under that form of government. The central authority is very limited in its taxing power. And so that structure remained. We had a federal republic under the Articles of Confederation. The states taxed themselves. The central authority didn't have much taxing power at all. Uh, it could defend the colonies, but the states would have to send the requisite troops to do it, which is exactly the way the system worked, essentially, under the Articles of Confederation during the war, even before the war. So there were those that agitated and thought, no, 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 we need the center with more power. And so we get the U.S. Constitution. And undoubtedly, the U.S. Constitution created a general government with more power than that existed under the Articles of Confederation. But it still was a federal republic. And this is how it was sold to the states during ratification. We had a federal republic with strictly enumerated powers. As Article 1 says, all legislative powers herein granted. Well, who's doing the granting? Well, of course, the people of the states. It is a federal republic. You look at people like Tench Cox. I'll just use him as example. But you can go down the list. This is my originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy. You need that class. I'm telling you. If you look at Tench Cox and then all the other proponents of the Constitution and what they said about it, you had very defined powers for the center. James Wilson in his Statehouse Yard speech very defined powers for the center. Those powers essentially were commerce and defense. That's it. And by commerce, they meant to keep commercial endeavors open. So the states, there was a free trade zone between the states. We didn't have tariffs between Virginia and Maryland, for example, or uh, you know Maryland and Pennsylvania. We just wouldn't have that. Or you know New York and Pennsylvania. These kind of things wouldn't exist. In that design, of course, you have this idea of limited powers for the central authority. The same structure that you had in Britain. So, when the U.S. Congress begins to pass unconstitutional legislation, which they do almost immediately, I've talked about this, you know, people ask when the Constitution died, I point to the Judiciary Act in 1789 where the Constitution died because it gave 
appellate authority uh, to the federal courts, right? And what I mean by that is you could appeal a state Supreme Court decision to a federal court. And so when you do that, you destroy the power of the state courts and the federal courts become supreme. And essentially what you have just done is nationalize the entire system. Because once you throw that to a federal court system, it really becomes difficult for the states legally through the, through the court systems to block unconstitutional legislation. So they had to come up with another way to do it. And this essentially is nullification, something they had used in the colonial period. But when the general government begins to pass unconstitutional legislation that the states can check, which is exactly the language that was used in the ratification debates, Roger Sherman, the states will be powerful enough to check it, right? So when you have this, this happen, you have, of course, Jefferson and Madison in 1798 with the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, and they were designed to nullify the Alien and Sedition Acts. Most importantly, the Sedition Law, but they were also opposed to certain elements of the Alien Acts. And this worked. In fact, it's been, it's been now, I think, conclusively proven that there are more states willing to rally around the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions than historians have been willing to admit and that there was a lot more um, legal activity going on behind the scenes and people getting arrested unconstitutionally for these things and what people are willing to admit. And so this actually worked. People rallied around Virginia and Kentucky and it worked. The, the Sedition Act and the Alien Acts were either repealed or expired. And because of the Alien and Sedition Acts and because of nullification, the Republicans sweep to power in 1800 and 1801. And again, they simply get rid of this stuff. So it worked. It worked in 1798. So now we have, we move forward a little bit in time and we start talking about nullification in New England. During the War of 1812, New England used a type of nullification in any kind of legislation against the war. In fact, the Hartford Convention really was more of a nullification convention than anything else, than a secession convention, though they did talk about secession. And New England was interested in secession in the early, early 1800s, early 19th century. They were interested in secession in 1794. Obviously, they understood this was a federal republic with limited and enumerated powers. And if the general government started doing things that were unconstitutional, they didn't want to be part of it. So you had this belief in a federal system. The states have powers. The general government has powers. The states gave the general government its powers so they can rescind those powers. I mean, this is how people understood this, the whole system. Of course, the other famous time for nullification was the South Carolina controversy with the federal tariff, and South Carolina nullified the tariff. You know what happened? The federal government reduced the tariff. South Carolina also nullified the force bill. This is the unknown part of that. They nullified the force bill and then adjourned. That stayed on the books. The force bill was null and void in the state of South Carolina. The federal government never did anything about that. Of course, they never used it. But here we have South Carolina nullifying a federal tariff. The federal government backs down. We had states in uh, the North in the 1840s nullifying the Fugitive Slave Law. So in that particular case, now what's interesting is the federal courts actually sided with the states and non-commandeering. They didn't, they didn't say that they had 
officially nullified the fugitive slave law. What they did say is that the states are not required to use federal resources to enforce federal, or I'm sorry, state resources to enforce federal law. The federal government can pass laws, but the states don't have to use their own resources to enforce them. So if the federal government wants to enforce the fugitive slave law, it's free to do so, but it must send in its own federal marshals to go round up fugitive slaves. You don't have to use state sheriffs or state police force or whatever it is to do it. Well, isn't that something interesting? You know, so the federal government now uh, doesn't have the resources. This is the dirty little secret. It doesn't have the resources in any of the federal agencies to enforce most of these federal laws. The only entity that can do it is the state, and essentially the state police forces are empowering themselves to do it. All they have to do is say, no, we're not going to do that. And guess what happens? The entire federal law enforcement simply crumbles because they don't have the manpower to go out and do it. This is what people like uh, Michael Bolden at the 10th Amendment Center have been talking about for years. Okay, so I'm going to get to them in a minute. But So we've got all this history. Then, of course, you get to the post-war period and you get to the civil rights period. And this is where nullification becomes a dirty word because you have southern states attempting through what they called massive resistance to resist federal integration mandates. They're not going to integrate the schools. They, they start using legal methods to do this. And, of course, eventually, the, I mean, the way the federal government responded was force, ultimately, under Eisenhower. And uh, also the FBI and other things trying to use force to, in, to make a court ruling legislation. This is where you get into, well, is, a, is this I talked about the, the appellate, is a court ruling law. And do if it applies, if it's, you know, Brown v. Board of Education was in Kansas. So does a, a ruling that affects Kansas apply to Alabama or Virginia or Massachusetts? That was a big question. Um, so you would have to bring suit in all of those states to do it, at least theoretically. And this is where the South was, was going with their legal defense of this. And, of course, saying that this is not a law. Congress has no authority to do this. Education's outside the purview of the general government. They're actually constitutionally correct on that. But, of course, segregation was an issue that Americans were going to rally around and say this is wrong, we shouldn't treat people differently, American citizens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there was a moral impetus behind it that was not going to allow the South to have a legal position that would work. Or any I mean, Massachusetts, where they had, they had riots against forced busing. There were, there were people that were just, the American public overall and public perception wasn't going to allow this to stand. So nullification became a dirty word because of the civil rights movement, essentially. But what we've seen in the last 25 years is a general resurgence of this. And this is where I said it's the positive side of it. You've got great work being done by the 10th Amendment Center, and they've crafted legislation on a variety of issues that has had a tremendous amount of impact in the way the states look at the relationship between the states and the general government. Something I thought really was un impossible and unheard of just 25 years ago. And I have to give Michael Bolden credit on this. He started the 10th Amendment Center in his living room. He still essentially operates, operates the institution out of his living room. They punch way beyond their weight class and what they're able to do. This is real think local, act local in action. Because Bolden said, here's something that's going on. Heck, I, I'm, I'm just a guy, right? I'm just a guy. I, I'm not some politician. I'm not some, you know, I, I don't have a PhD in anything. I'm just a guy that's interested in this stuff. And he, he 
was a le- very left wing as a young person, and he saw some things in California he didn't like. And so he wanted to take some action out of it, and he starts researching and finds out that, hey, there's this idea of nullification out there. And um, I remember it was probably about uh, 2009, I think he contacted me. So it's, it's over a decade ago. And he said, hey, can you write some stuff for me? Um, and I had just published uh, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. Can you write some things for me? And I said, sure, you know, I'll help him out. I'll write some stuff. And uh, in that, I mean, since then, the Tenth Amendment Center has just become such a juggernaut when you look at how they're able to craft things that help people. They still don't have a lot of financial resources. If you do want to donate to something, there's two organizations I would highly recommend, the Tenth Amendment Center and the Abbeville Institute. If you like the Southern side of things, then donate to the Institute. If you like the Tenth Amendment and just in federalism, donate to the Tenth Amendment Center or donate to both. They both we both cross over quite a bit. Now I'm, I'm part of the Abbeville Institute, so we both cross over quite a lot, and it's great. I mean, to have uh, you know, the Tenth Amendment Center out there and doing what they do on a regular basis. Again, this would have been unheard of in 1998 when I made that statement about nullification. This is you know almost 20 years before uh, Michael Bolden is going to start the Tenth Amendment Center, and the Tenth Amendment works. Clyde Wilson was 100% correct. It works. So what I've seen in the last 25 years, or in the last, say, well, 10 years, more than anything else, is a real resurgence in interest in these ideas of decentralization, whether it's secession, whether it's nullification, whether it's real federalism, whatever it is, there certainly is an interest. And I think at the grassroots level, there is a much more substantial interest in these issues than we've ever seen since, really, the middle of the 20th century. And it's not based on race. It's not based on any kind of, uh, of, some, of issue that you would say, well, we can't rally around that. It's all kinds of other things that people are saying, yeah, the federal government really doesn't have power to do this. And now you throw in the school issue and critical race theory and all of this stuff and COVID. And you've got a lot of people, and it's you know it could be um, it could be a gun rights issue, it could be a, a, a medical marijuana issue, whatever it is. You've got all these people that are interested in what the states can do to really push back against the center and say to the emperor, "You have no clothes, you have no authority here." And you know what? It works every single time. And you look at Ron DeSantis, or you look at Kay Ivey in Alabama. Uh, you look at uh, you look at the governor of Texas. You you look at people across the South or across the United States that have simply said, you know what, we're not going to enforce these unconstitutional edicts coming from Washington D.C. on mask restrictions, for example, or vaccination requirements, or whatever it is with COVID, or we're not going to enforce your idiotic you know gun laws. You have you have no authority to do this. Whatever it is, it could be a left wing issue. We're not going to enforce your uh, your unconstitutional law on medical marijuana. We have perfect authority to do this. That is interesting because you know the United States government still says that these things are illegal, but the state simply just stopped enforcing it. And you know what? The general government didn't have enough uh, DEA agents to go out and round up all these people that were now involved in cities and states doing things that they said were illegal, but the state said, yeah, we're just not going to send in our own troops, our own police force, and, and enforce your laws. That's the interesting thing about it. You know, um, so states can not be complicit in the actions of the federal government. They cannot be compliant in enforcing them. And that means the whole 
structure of unconstitutional federal legislation falls apart. So that's the positive. I'm seeing more of that now than at any time in really the last over 100 years. I mean, even when you look at the 1950s and 60s and the Civil Rights Movement, that was very localized and um, regional for the most part. Like I, I mentioned Boston because you had 1970s, you had riots in Boston over busing. Um, but there was kind of this moral self-righteousness around that. Now you have so many disparate issues that people are really becoming interested in. Even, even the Dobbs decision, you're seeing states say, okay, we're going to do X, and then other states are saying we're going to do Y. And you know what? State X can't do anything about what state Y does and vice versa. And it's created a general peace in some of this stuff. Um, so that's kind of settled down recently because people in leftist states, I think, woke up and said, well, I mean, nothing's really changed for me. Why am I going to go out and stand in the street and protest this stuff? Because I don't need to. California is great California for me. And people in, say, Mississippi and saying, you know what? We got what we wanted. And I really don't care what they do in California. So a lot of things have gone in that direction. Now, on the flip side of this, the negative. Do I think the American political class is interested in decentralization? Absolutely not. There is a real disconnect between the general public on these issues and the political class on these issues, both left and right. And I think what's really troubling for me in this, um, so you can, you know, that's academic troubling, disturbing. Used to be disturbing. What I'm really disturbed about, now it's troubling. What I'm really troubled about is this interest in someone like Ron DeSantis coming in or a Donald Trump on the right and going in and completely bulldozing the left. Now, you can say, and uh, I had a conversation with Tom Woods about this, yeah, but you can have your principles and sit in the front of the boxcar, right? Um, as they're hauling you off to your re-education camp. Um, I understand using the system that's been put there to get the other side. And the left does it too, right? The left will do it. The right will do it. We know now that some information has come out. Trump was trying to weaponize the IRS. We know that the left tries to weaponize the IRS. I mean, this is dangerous for everybody. And I think this is, again, there's a disconnect between the political class at the federal level in particular, and then everyone else in America who thinks, oh, that's wrong. They don't want, they don't want these people doing it. They don't want those people doing it. But you get national media, you get national attention, and you think my way or the highway for everybody is what needs to happen. When you want Ron DeSantis to go in, or Donald Trump, if you're on the right, to go in, and these are the Christian nationalists, these are the people, these are the national populists, when you want your candidate to go in on the right and kick the teeth in on the left using the powerful federal government that's been created over the last century and a half, um, that's fun, right? If you're on the right, this is fun. We're getting the lefties. If you're on the left and you want, uh, you know, Joe Biden or Barack Obama or Kamala Harris or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, whoever it is, to go in and kick the teeth in on those on the right and really show them, you're doing, I mean, that's, that's their revolution. They need that. The left is less interested, I think, in decentralization than the right. Um, and I talked about this with the, the, the thing I did on you know, the next civil war. Um, but when you look at some issues, they're perfectly comfortable with decentralization. So I, I don't, if you're talking about national politicians, I don't see a great movement in the center for any kind of decentralization. It would be against their own interests. 
I think the Straussians are too cent, and this is, goes down to the Lincoln myth. I think the Straussians are too centralist. This is my great beef with the Straussians. I think the the uh, conservative populists are too much. They're too centralist. I think that uh, the, of course the socialists, the Marxists, are way too centralist. Um, all these centralizers, all these nationalism, really is the problem. I've said it before on this podcast. The Lincolnian myth that you have to have everything from the center really is a problem in American politics. And until we get around that, until we can figure out a way to have this disconnect between the center and the public work, right, we're going to continue to have problems in American society because there's going to be this divide between the two. So how does that change? Well, you get more involved at your state and local level. You start really trying to work grassroots from the bottom up and saying you know, to the center, we don't want you to do all these things. We want this done at the state and local level. It has to come from a groundswell. It has to come from the bottom up. It's not going to come from the top down. Ron DeSantis is not going to save America. Bernie Sanders is not going to save America if you're on the left. That's not going to happen. Joe Biden's not going to save America. Donald Trump's not going to save America. What's going to save America is people in your local communities doing what they can to make America great or keep America great or whatever. However you want to phrase it, if you really like what's going on in your place right now, that's what you got. And I mean, I can point to the federal legislation just recently on marriage where they, they codified you know, same-sex marriage. This is completely unconstitutional. This is a state issue. It always has been a state issue, and the state should handle this. You should be able to have your state reflect your political culture, whatever it is, and that's something that, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter where your position is on this, even if it was a, a legislation against same-sex marriage, which we had the Defense of Marriage Act, that was also unconstitutional. Any federal legislation on that issue is unconstitutional. So we don't often think about it that way, but it's the way it works. So that's my answer to your question. Are we approaching more decentralization? I think yes, from the bottom up, but not from the top down. We've got to get those two things aligned, particularly the bottom up needs to start making the top down much more much have much less power and they have to be powerless and uh, we could see some real change and some real difference in America. All right. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan show. See you then.